Hey, you can have a seat. Thank you, worship team. Hey, it is good to be in the house today with you, my friends. Hope you have enjoyed this uh, vibey weather, as the children call it. Um, uh, who's here on Thanksgiving break right now? Who's on Thanksgiving break in the house? Yeah, woo! Let's go. Amazing. Well, hey, um, we've been in a series, and tonight is the final teaching for this series. And the title of the series is uh, In This House. And the premise of the series is how do we, as followers of Jesus, learn to look more like Jesus and less like our environment, less like our circumstances? And each week, we've gotten into different things. We've talked through different ideas. We've talked on how to rely on the Lord in prayer and on our anxiety. We talked through evangelism and what truly relational evangelism looks like. We talked on how to build radically intentional relationships and a few other topics of just mimicking the lifestyle of Jesus. And tonight, I want to talk through something a little bit more specific. But before we get there, um, I, I have to use this example. I watched this this week, and I don't know why it was on my brain. But I just started thinking of the B-movie this week, okay? Um, I don't know why. It's just a golden masterpiece. That's why. Top-tier cinema, okay? Um, and so I was thinking about the B-movie, so we watched it, okay? And the B-movie, at worst, if you've never seen it, okay, I can only recommend it to you. At worst, it's like a hallucination, okay? Like, you didn't take your medication that day or something, and you don't know what's going on. That's how I imagine that feeling is, watching the B-movie, at worst. At best, it's kind of this, like, realistic commentary on just the monotonous drawl that it feels to be human sometimes. Like, you just go into rhythm after rhythm into rhythm after rhythm, and you kind of feel like, I am Barry Benson. You know what I'm saying? Like, each day, in and out. I don't know. That's for me, at least. You may resonate with, like, Shrek or something, but I resonate with Barry Benson. And I was watching this movie, and I felt like watching it, and it kind of ties in with tonight, and we'll get into that. But I find it really fascinating how often we compare ourselves as humans to animals. And um, to be honest, poor animals to be compared to humans, to be, to be real with you. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me that we look to animals, we look to specifically bees, like in the bee movie, and we look to bees and, and how rigorous and scheduled their life is, and then we ourselves feel like that's kind of us. Like we kind of have schedules, we kind of have rigor. And I believe one of the biggest shams of evolutionary psychology is to say from some point we came from animals. And the reason is this. We believe, atheism believes, not we believe, but atheism really believes at its heart that humans, all we are is just animals. That all we are, the best we can do is just we're just relying on our instincts. That actually you have no free will, you have no ability, you're just as much like Barry Benson as reality tells you. All you have is your instincts. And to be honest, I, I find that to be a little bit faulty because the truth is, um, if humanity just relied on our instincts and we were like animals in that sense, we'd be doing pretty well as a species, okay? Think about this, okay? Think about ants. Do you think ants are like concerned about global warming or anything? You know what I mean? Uh, do, are, are ants ever in a crisis? No. You think about bears, okay? Are bears ever just frustrated about how they weren't bare enough that day? No. They don't, they don't sit outside their den and they're like, man, I just really didn't, I just dropped the ball on being a bear today. Am I, am I living up to my potential? Different animals, they just do their thing. But humans, we're weird because we don't do what we should. We, we don't actually follow our instincts. We actually follow weird patterns of behavior. We do weird things as humans. We do such weird things as people. And I believe that as people, we often fall into a trap 
of doing what's easiest. That we don't necessarily follow our instincts, but as people, we default to falling into what's easy for us to do. And tonight, I want to specifically touch on this topic. I want to specifically touch on the topic of how mindless tradition hinders obedience. We're about to step into a season of tradition, okay? I'm not anti-Christmas up here. Open your presents, do whatever, okay? Listen to your Christmas playlist. But I want to challenge tradition a little bit tonight, and specifically mindless tradition. Now, I'm not up here to be anti-tradition. Like I'm saying, I love tradition. Even as followers of Jesus, we stand on the shoulders of those in the faith in tradition. But I believe there's a certain default we fall into as people where we just rely on kind of what's always been done. We kind of rely on the pattern of behavior that people we look up to did it that way. We look up to them, so we want to do it that way. And we fall into a mindless pattern of just replicating other people's behavior. Through this entire series, what we've been touching on, what each week I have been diving into and desiring for us to lean deeper into, is how do we break away from simply just what we've been told or what we think and what the environments we're surrounded by show us, and how do we actually live a life that's radically formed around who Jesus is, around what Jesus actually had to say about community, around what Jesus actually had to say about evangelism, what Jesus actually had to say about these things. And the text that Jalem just read falls into this section of the New Testament where Jesus, right before, a few chapters before, actually challenged the religious authorities of his day from their mindless tradition. He actually challenged them and that their tradition, that them following rules for the sake of just following rules, actually kills the principle of what it means to follow the kingdom of God. And I believe that being New Testament believers... We aren't just called to mindlessly follow after God for no reason apart from it. We've just been told to do so. The New Testament tells us, come, let us reason together. That there is reason as to why God is worth following and why Jesus gives the best example for how to be human. And I want to take us through and kind of reverse engineer our way to our teaching text tonight. I want to jump right to the middle where we just were. I want to jump to Mark chapter 11, verses 15. And through looking at the life of Jesus and what he does in this instance, this famous story, I believe we can begin to understand traditions that we are clinging to that actually Jesus never asked of us. Ways of life, ways of life that we have found comfortable and easy when the reality is Jesus has called us to something else. So I'm going to reread this to you, verses 15 to 16. This is what it says, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. On a slow Monday afternoon in, in 1987 in Miami, the local police were called to a potential disturbance. The operator had informed them that there had been gunshots in a local building downtown. The police got in their car and arrived on the scene. And upon arriving at the scene, they had found one person wounded by a bullet wound and two people died. The reasoning behind this is that earlier that day, a man by the name of Arthur Kane 
had shot two investors and ultimately himself. This is what the New York Times says in an article at that moment. Investor Arthur Kane in Miami, authorities said he was facing a margin call from his broker. Relatable, right? Who was seeking $200,000 as collateral for loans to buy stocks. I can't even imagine what $200,000 looks like. Okay, oh my gosh, this guy. It was a margin call on Kane who lost $15 million in the market plunge. And that apparently made him to shoot and kill one Merrill Lynch executive in Miami on Monday and wound a second brokerage executive, then killing himself. This was a famous moment in 20th century American history where it was actually the starkest day in the stock market. That actually more people had lost money in 1987 than in the Great Depression. And that there's multiple stories and accounts of people just taking their lives or ending the lives of other people. For this individual, he was so frustrated with his losses that he hurt and killed the two people that he deemed responsible, ultimately killing himself because he could never recover from such significant loss of money. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that in the United States, specifically for people in the West at large, actually, we care about money a lot. Wouldn't you say so? Like, am I crazy up here? Am I, am I wild? We care about money a lot, specifically as Americans. I don't care what your politics are. People can say whatever reform or thing they want. Once you start touching people's money, people are like, hey, hey now. Okay. Hey, hey. People in San Francisco want their million-dollar mansion just as much as the people in Texas want theirs. Okay? That's all I'm saying. Once you start touching people's money in politics, people start caring a little differently. As has been said, nothing is free, and you and I know that, okay, living in 2023, soon 2024, where everything is expensive. Like, I feel like it'll be soon that just breathing outside costs money. It's hard to live. You need money to live. You need money to get by. You need money to do things in this world. But there comes a point where I believe money very easily takes priority in our life of what is most important over Jesus, Few things can take the place of Jesus as easily as money does. And the truth is that even Jesus had an issue to somebody who loves money a little bit too much. He said, it is close to impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Paul would go on to say to Timothy that the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is root to all kinds of evil. So, until, so don't go cut your, your cards and burn all your money underneath your mattress or something. He's saying the love of money... That you just think about in the world, how many times have people harmed one another like this story for the sake of money? In this instance, that Jesus is calling out mindless tradition, I believe that we as people very easily begin committing to a tradition of personal gain. Specifically, when it comes to following Jesus at times. We commit to a tradition of personal gain. See, Jesus doesn't say impossible when he, when he cites that for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not impossible, but he says close to, because he understands the leverage and the pull, that money and the greed of it, how easily it overtakes people. And it explains the scene that we find ourselves in tonight. All of a sudden we walk in, Jesus is throwing over tables. It kind of seems like, whoa, this is random. Um, I'm gonna go throw over tables at work, I guess, tomorrow, because that's what Jesus did. Uh, don't do that, okay? Um, don't throw your professor's table over, even though uh, you don't like them. See, what we need to understand is Jesus didn't go read, like, uh, Karl Marx and say, I need to seize the means of production, okay? Jesus isn't, like, anti-mercantilism, okay? Jesus isn't trying to say money's bad, making money's terrible. But we need to understand the context of what he is against truly. See, what had been happening 
is people in this instance, they're setting up hurdles, they're setting up obstacles in which they're making it harder for people to access God's forgiveness. What is happening in this moment is that in Jewish tradition, the way that you were made right with God is you would take an animal that you raised, the best of the best of your animals. In this day, everyone had animals. It was just kind of the thing you did. It was a form of currency. You would take your animal. You would take it to the temple. You didn't live close to the temple. You had to walk really, really far, most likely, because you were poor, and it's like the first century. You take your animal that you raised, and then you would go and get this animal sacrificed to be made right with God, to cleanse your sins. This is why it's so controversial in Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, if you go to sacrifice an animal at the temple and you have something against your brother, leave that animal at the temple and go make it right with your brother. Jesus isn't saying, like, go turn down Montano and take a 15-minute trek. He's saying, you're going to walk miles and miles and miles and miles, and you're going to make it right with your brother before you make it right with God. And so this is the context that we are in. This is what you would need to do. And if you want to learn more about that, it's in Deuteronomy Leviticus, thoroughly outlined. But this is what's fascinating. God also had in mind in the Old Testament law that not everybody could afford just a prime bull or a spotless lamb, that a lot of people were actually in poverty in the Old Testament as well. And what Jesus, what God allowed is that for people to sacrifice birds in the place of a larger animal. So if you couldn't afford the big great bull, you would then buy a small pigeon, and sometimes it was given to people to sacrifice in its place to be made right with God. And I love this because this shows that even in God's law, thousands of centuries ago, he still was mindful of the poor. And you're like, hallelujah, I am poor tonight being a college student. Yet suddenly in the time of Jesus, it seems like there's a shift. What has been done for so long has now materialized to become so corrupt. And I don't believe this started out innocent. I don't believe people began to start marginalizing others and their ability to be made right with God through the selling of these birds. See, it started out slowly. And the, and the thing that happened is that people would come to the temple and that they would then begin to ask a different kind of coin being used in the temple. So if you can't buy this bird, actually, you can't use your Roman coin. You have to use temple coin. And they would upmark the price like a pair of Jordans online. They would say, this is the resale value for this pigeon if you want to be made right with God. And the poor and the, at large, the majority of people in the context were not allowed to be made right with God because they couldn't afford it. So Jesus is overturning their tables. He's, he's pushing them to the side. He's saying, you have made obstacles for God's forgiveness. People who should have been offered freely a connection point to God have, not, have now been hindered by man's traditions. And I don't believe these people woke up one day and said, hey, I just want to make it super difficult for people to be forgiven by God. That sounds like my idea for today. But I believe it started out slowly through tradition. And I believe this, that one of the first traditions we easily commit to mindlessly that gets in the way of our obedience to Jesus is committing to a tradition of personal gain. As this didn't start out harmful. This didn't start out as something that would have gone against people. But how this started out is how most things start out that eventually harm others and ourselves, justifying our personal difficulty despite being obedient to the Lord. That these people probably themselves felt like times were tough, that they needed to make a little extra money, so they cut corners, they forced people to buy this so that they could be better off, and they probably justified it with, well, times are hard. I got to feed my family. I got to do what I must do. 
Now, do I believe that as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, we are struggling with selling pigeons outside church? No, please don't be that guy, okay? Don't be the guy selling pigeons outside the doors right now, okay? I don't believe any of us are dealing with that. But what I do believe is the heart of Jesus' warning in this passage is this, that we tend, as those who are image bearers of Christ, we tend to make it harder for people to follow Jesus in one primary area that I witness, in the area of relationship. I find that we tend to treat people as if we have something to gain from them instead of seeing them for who Jesus made them to be and the potential unlocked in their life. And we tend to see people transactionally. We tend to see people, what we can get from them sexually, financially, relationally. What begins to happen is the reality of God in their life is blotted out by the weight of the shame we put on them from our misgivings, our poor ways that we treat them. That what begins to happen is that instead of bearing the image of the Lord, instead of signifying to them the reality of who Jesus is, we look more like the context we're around, the culture we're in, and people are so weighed down by the shame that is produced from those circumstances and situations, they feel as if they aren't capable or able to access God, that they're too dirty to be around him. People begin to feel worthless. People begin to feel like God's forgiveness is too far. But the way in which we do this often is how we treat other people. I find that we look at this story and we think, yeah, those terrible money changers, whatever that means. Those, those terrible people that Jesus is throwing those tables over. But I find that we as individuals, we tend to be our own worst money changers. We, we, we tend to be the people in this story that Jesus may have been flipping our own tables in our lives. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He teaches his disciples this in verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. I recently came across a story of uh, a gorilla who was raised with orangutans. This gorilla's name was um, Julia. Okay, we got a photo of Gorilla Julia on the screen. Come on. That's amazing. Um, if they didn't rip us apart as humans, I'd still get a pet gorilla, but that's like impossible. Um, I came across this story, and you've heard of Harambe, okay, throwback to Harambe, but I don't know if you've heard of Julia, and this is what this news article said. It said, a female gorilla raised in Jersey has been killed by a male gorilla in an unexpected level of aggression. Julia, 33, was attacked by a young, inexperienced, I love that they add that, he's an inexperienced gorilla, like, what does that mean? Silverback called Otana, dude, I'm canceling Otana tomorrow, okay, and died of her injuries after the attack in Australia, after the attack in Australia. What's fascinating about this moment is the backstory behind this gorilla, Julia, is that she was raised with orangutans and not around gorillas. And so by the time she was introduced to the environment of other gorillas, the, the lead gorilla couldn't stand her. He, could, he didn't want anything to do with her. She was too different from the rest of the pack. We can take down the photo of Julia, RIP Julia, okay? This story's fascinating to me because, no, I don't believe we came from monkeys, obviously, okay? Um, they're much too cute for us to come from them. But I do believe we do tend to share, as I mentioned in the beginning, we do tend to share some of the darker sides of our humanity with animals. There's, there's this strange reality that the darker side of humans tends to mimic more animals than actually being human. And I believe that 
a lot of this is rooted in committing to a tradition of exclusivity for the sake of comfort. We, we commit to another tradition that's mindless, which is excluding others, making an in-group and an out-group for the sake of our own personal comfort. See, when it comes to other members of our species, when it comes to people that don't look like us, that don't talk like us, that don't, that don't act the way we do, we tend to get funny as individuals. We, we tend to face the tension that many others feel that we highlight more as people what makes us different than what makes us similar. See, cancel culture, it's, it's a tale as old as time. People have been doing this forever. People have been putting people on the outside for the sake of not agreeing enough with others. See, I believe this is also why people tend to shun Christians and culture. That many people feel as if we as followers of Jesus have created an in-group, those who are in and those who are out. And unless you're in, we're going to treat you poorly. And unless you're in, unless you look like us, unless you talk like us, unless you are like us, you have no place with us. And there has created a culture and a pattern within the church that has caused people to want nothing to do with followers of Jesus for this reason. It's quite a shame. This was such a big deal to Jesus that in his Gethsemane prayer, before he goes to the cross, he prays for unity for the church. Because to be honest, if you want a system, a group of people to never introduce anybody new into what they are doing, you make them disunified within themselves. That the same way we shun people outside the church, we tend to also turn inwardly to those who just don't agree with us inside the church. I believe that this is a struggle we must, we must push up against as followers of Jesus, especially in the 21st century. Especially in the 21st century when everybody is just known for what they think about something. That all we see people is for their ideas, not for who they are as individuals. Notice Jesus' words, though, in this verse. My house is one of all nations, a house of prayer. See, what we can begin to do and what we can be tempted towards in, in the name of inclusivity, whatever that means, in, in the name of bringing people in, as followers of Jesus, we can begin to shy away from the harder parts of what Jesus instructs us to do. We see the pattern in culture. We see the ways that Christians treat people. We say, yeah, it's probably because everyone's just too legalistic. It's probably because of these reasons that we actually need to just be more accommodating to people. But on the other side, that's also a dangerous game to play. See, Jesus says, you have made my house a den of robbers. Notice that Jesus has a standard still for what is expected of his followers. But there's a balance there. And I believe that two ideas have really summarized the two opposites of this tension. You see... Legalistic fundamentalism theology communicates, look how good I am. Where progressive liberalism theology communicates, look how not that bad I am. And we are fought and meet ourselves in the middle of these two tensions. And then we quote, quote, quote and we quote this kind of mindset and perspective about other people with different words. Like we get together in little prayer groups. Where we say, yeah, so-and-so just needs prayer right now. Or we say, you know, I can never relate. I can never relate to what they're struggling with. And we find ourselves in this moment that Jesus actually calls us to unity. 
And that Jesus actually calls us to sacrifice our own comfort for what he desires. I believe that Kendra Dean from her book, Almost Christian, sums this up well. The problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, but that we are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what we really believe. Namely, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. What if the blasé religiosity of most American teens is not the result of poor communication, but the result of excellent communication of a watered-down gospel so devoid of God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ, so immune to the sending love of the Holy Spirit that it might not be Christianity at all? What if the church models a way of life that asks not passionate surrender, but ho-hum assent? I believe that we're caught in the middle of these two tensions. That the world wants to call followers of Jesus away from conviction into just dissolving in culture. But at the same time, we have to fight against the impulse of entirely drawing away from culture. That Jesus calls us to be unified within. And that by our love for one another, that is how the world will know we are his disciples. And so we're in the middle of these two tensions. And I find that. Younger generations, we tend to struggle more with the former thing, more, more with the latter thing, I mean, of just kind of more nuanced, TikTok-esque, YouTuber, one-time theology. Well, he was studying the Greek. He was studying the Greek, but it wasn't good Greek. Okay, I got to tell you that. Just right now. Somebody. Somebody in the house. And I find that rarely people will kind of yo-yo into, like, legalism and just be, like, super intense about faith. But more often I see we kind of fall into this passive apathetic faith, that we look more like Jesus' confrontation about a den of robbers than we do like not unifying, not being inclusive enough for people. Here's the right theology if you want to know. I don't have the answers. I'm just trying to be like the one who does, okay? The reality is that we're not supposed to fight this battle of just proving how good we are, how much we have it together to everybody, And we're not supposed to just open up the doors and say, hey, it's like whatever. Jesus just does whatever. I don't really know the gospel. Something about Jesus coming alongside your personal plans in life. And that's like it. It's really cool. Jesus isn't self-helpism, but he also isn't superior self-righteousness. But Jesus is calling us to realize that we don't have the answers on our own. That we're just trying to look like him. See, I believe when you carry this mindset. When you carry the mindset of we are looking to Jesus and who he is, not looking to ourselves alone, we begin to take on the lens. We take on the lens of how God sees people, that you can begin to minister and love our world effectively when you begin to see how much you don't have it together and how much Jesus does. That you can begin to know and understand that this is a house of prayer for all nations when the reality comes to the conclusion that I just want more people to know Jesus because he changed my life and he might, and he know that he will change yours. Any other belief system works in the might be's. Jesus and looking to him alone is the confirmation of perfect unity with God. And here's something else that you need to know. Notice that, that Jesus understands the diversity and the reality of people coming together in his name. That as followers of of him, we are not playing the solo game. That we are working towards community together. And I have to tell you this, that 
Falling into community, stepping into community, God's community, being intentional about it, it's not always super comfortable. It's not always really easy. We all got the Holy Spirit, but there's some days some of us say, are you sure? You sure you got the Holy Spirit? We can be a little bit honest in the room tonight. I think when I came to the Lord, the biggest thing that kept me from pursuing the Lord was other people claiming to follow the Lord, right? Like, like there's nothing that drives followers of Jesus more crazy than other followers of Jesus at times. There comes a reality where it doesn't always make sense to choose community with other people following Jesus. There's times where it can be really easy to look to the exterior and act like other people have it figured out. But following Jesus happens in community. It happens together. And I find that often we, we shy away from stepping into true community with other followers of Jesus, allowing people to step into our circumstances for the sake of our own personal comfort. And I, I see this a lot, that we say things like, oh, I just don't have a peace about it. But the reality is, is that I don't think it's that you don't have a peace. I think you ate too much taco cabana that day. Maybe you lack some social skills. You know what I'm saying? Like, may not be, you know, you know, may, may not be feeling right about it for that reason. That actually, what we're actually saying is, I just don't feel really comfortable with that. I, I don't really feel comfortable, Nick, with relational evangelism, because I don't want to invite the people from my neighborhood into my apartment. You know, okay? You know, there's not even washing machines in my apartment. It's that kind of apartment complex. You know what I'm saying? Like, why, why would I invite people into this context? But Jesus is calling us to his obedience, not to our personal comfort. Not to our personal comfort. He's calling us to be faithful and step into obedience to him, whatever that looks like in your life. And let me be real with you. That looks different for each and every one of us, okay? Showing up week in and week out, stepping into what God's called you to, even when you don't feel like it, it's a hard thing to do. Got to be honest with you. Each week I get up here, it's not always the easiest thing, okay? There's some weeks I'm like, man, I'd really love to be eating like spaghetti at my house right now, right? Like there's some weeks it's like, I really don't know. Maybe I should call somebody to teach for me. I love to teach and I love doing this, but the reality is I just don't always feel like it. But I don't show up and I don't do this for the sake of your gain, for the sake of, well, I just want their approval. Well, I just really want them to think, man, Nick's so consistent. He just teaches every week. No, I'm doing this for the gain of God's approval. That, that the reality is I'm not doing this to gain anybody's approval, that I've already gained my heavenly father's approval and I want to please him. That when we operate in a faith that focuses more on pleasing other people, we're going to end up serving that master over Jesus. That we're inevitably going to work ourselves into a comfortable little space of people pleasing. But I want to challenge you to keep showing up. Whatever it is in your life, whatever thing I said that I, I challenge you to be obedient to, and you're like, ah, oh, is, is, is it really that? Yeah, it's really that thing. It, it's really that instance in your life right now that you're praying, that you're thinking about, that you're talking about with somebody in the car on the way over here. You're like, I think I'm kind of done with, I, I think the Lord is asking us to step further into obedience to him in the context we've been placed in. That I believe that the Lord is asking us to do this, not so we're noticed, not so that people can think we're really great, that we're really influential people, that we gain status and advertisement deals, but that we can truly step into the context in which Jesus has given us. I have, to, I have to tell you this as well. If you aren't faithful to what God's called you to, he'll find somebody else to do it. That's the reality. God's, God's not like sitting up in heaven like, man, like, dang, he's been like 15 minutes late. I, I, guess, I guess just revival's not coming today. No, no, revival's going to come through somebody, okay? 
Revival is going to show up in the context in which people are in through someone. God will find a faithful servant. The reality is that Jesus is calling us to step out of that comfort, to pursue unity within the church, but in doing so, to not shrug off the obedience he is asking of us. What do you need to step into this week? And believe me, if Nick said no tonight, if I said no, I don't really teach tonight, God will find somebody else and probably somebody better, but you're stuck with me because I keep showing up. But let's finish by going backwards. Let's go to verse 12. Let's go to verse 12 because there's something that fascinating that happens in this passage. We need to start from the beginning in order to conclude. It says this, verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then jump to verse 20, because this is the connection of that story. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away but to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he, will, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you for your trespasses." Uh, the British atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, I have a little cute photo of him, okay? He kind of seemed like a sweet guy, all right? He, he had this fascinating uh, lecture at Harvard in about the 50s, and the, the title of this lecture is Why I Am Not a Christian. Um, the book is actually in my office, and people come and they're like, are you good, Nick? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just trying to make sense of people's postmodernism. But anyway, he has this really fascinating quote in this book where he pretty much says that the reason, a big reason why he doesn't believe in God is if Jesus is God, then him doing this is just like a jerk move. Literally what he says, this is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs and you really cannot blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. You think it'd be like the problem of evil, all these different circumstances. He says, I can't believe in God, you know, because uh, Jesus doesn't like fig trees. That's literally his reasoning. It's pretty intense. I wish I could sit down with old Birdie. Okay, he's dead now, sadly, I guess. Uh, and I wish I could sit down with him and show him that he actually missed the point. That the reality is that this isn't Jesus hating on botany, okay? Jesus is not anti-fig tree, but that this is a bigger picture. That this story is actually symbolic of what Jesus had just done in the temple. That Jesus is showing that there's two paths you can choose. The first path is personal satisfaction. And the second path is love and obedience to Jesus. At the end of the day, all Jesus asks us to commit to is him. Not mindless traditions, not somebody else's faith, but who he is. See, Jesus lived an obedient life to the Father. And if we want to be like him, we must do so as well. And what's fascinating about this moment is that Jesus is using this tree as a symbol of the Jewish nation at this time. That they have everything externally. That they have pretty leaves. That they're large and robust. But that what they have to offer is actually nothing. That anything to help anybody, anything to nourish anyone is lacking. 
This actually happens quite often in plants. And my wife, Skylar, tells me all about it. She's just like a baller when it comes to gardens and stuff. And she was telling me about how plants, when they don't bear fruit, when the flower doesn't bud to produce that fruit, what's happening is that a plant is focusing on all the other all the other leaves, all the other branches, all the other things, instead of allowing that fruit to be produced. That, that the flower is not able to come to full thriving because the plant is too focused and too oriented. It's putting its energy elsewhere. The plant isn't like deciding that. Factors decide that. But the result is no fruit. That leaves are pretty. That leaves do a lot. We see uh, the river, the beautiful trees changing. But to be honest, leaves don't really do much. We would prefer fruit if we had anything to get from a tree. All that trees have to offer from their leaves is a little bit of shade, but nothing to be sustained on. Jesus is using this as symbolism for the Jewish nation at this time. That they have all the fancy religious language. They've memorized all of the Old Testament. They have everything figured on the outside, but they're actually not allowing anybody to truly come to know who God is. That they're actually hindering the kingdom of God. See, this is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 to 23, that I believe summarizes this idea well. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, and he has rejected you as king. That's Samuel's words to Saul. So we find in the conclusion of this story that I, I, I want to challenge you in the closing of the series as we look to the life of Jesus as his model, his example. One of the greatest temptations we face is the temptation of being noticed. The temptation of people caring enough about what we're being obedient to. And I want to challenge you and ask you, are you being obedient when you're not being seen? Are you being faithful to the beautiful obscurity are you being faithful? See, we need people who are following Jesus who are janitors. We need people who are following Jesus working at gas stations. We need people who are following Jesus in all these simple hidden roles in the daily life of people and society because it's through this small step-by-step -step obedience that fruit is produced in our life. That we may be tempted towards the leaves, we may be tempted towards being seen, we may be tempted for the great span of influence we want to carry, but Jesus is asking for depth. Jesus is asking for deeper roots. Jesus is asking for us to be established in the context that he's put before us. Paul tells us in Acts 17 that God has appointed each point in time for a man to be alive. That God put you in the 21st century for the right reason. He did it on purpose. He said, I need a little bit of Matthew in 2023. I, I need a little bit of Joshua in 2023, in Albuquerque specifically. I need a little bit of Liam in 2023 in Albuquerque. It's no mistake that you are here, my friend. God has appointed you for such a time as this. Don't be the person that's like, I was just born in the wrong century. That's corny, okay? And it's not true. You were born for the right time. What do you need to be obedient to? What is God calling you deeper into where comfort is kind of trying to beckon you back? I want to end on this note tonight because it encapsulates all of what the series has been about. Understanding what holiness looks like, understanding what it looks like to be more like Jesus, it really doesn't have any teeth to these claims we're making if we're not faithful and obedient to what God's called us to. So I want to close and I want to pray for us that we may begin to wake up and realize what we need to be obedient to. 
Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for your obedience. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have it figured out. We don't really know what we're doing, but Jesus, you do. And that is why your Holy Spirit is known as the Parakletos, the helper. That, Lord, we need help in this room tonight. That, God, we can feel a lot like the money changers and the Pharisees pushing up against you, actually putting obstacles to get to you. But that, Jesus, we don't have to be left in that space. We do not have to be left to our own devices. Father, I pray for the young adults in this space, in this room tonight. That, Lord, in a generation, in a moment where we are known for wanting to be famous, for wanting to be known for something significant, to have all these experiences that, Father, you would press on our hearts the beautiful obscurity of obedience to you. That sometimes people won't see, sometimes people won't say anything, but that we may show up day in and day out to what you've called us to, even when we don't feel like it. And that we may be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. Lord, help us to say no to mindless tradition and yes to obedience to you. Lord, I pray right now over any young adult in this space, any individual listening online in the future, listening right now in this space that has felt weighed down by their shame, weighed down by their inability to get it right, that, Lord, they may look to your example and see that you're showing the way and that we have access to you, that we have forgiveness. We don't have to be defined by our shame and mistakes. Lord, I pray freedom in this space tonight. And that those who may not know you will come to know you. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Let's worship and eat some pie afterwards. Cool? All right.